Thank you, Robin. We'll go ahead and get started. It's good to see all of you. It's easy as a church to be lulled to sleep. We can go through the motions week after week, year after year, doing the same things. We don't address issues that need to be addressed. We don't deal with problems that need to be dealt with. And one of the reasons that we get into this sleepy pattern is that we forget what is at stake. We forget that we are in a real battle. We forget that there is a real enemy, the devil, Satan, who is out to destroy and to kill and to do us great harm. We forget that there are real dangers, even within the walls of our building, even within our own congregation. We can't afford to fall asleep. We can't afford to forget that these things are at play. This is why Scripture repeatedly warns us again and again and again to stay awake, to be watchful, to be ready, to be alert, to be clear-headed. Why? Because we are in a battle. We are caught up in a cosmic struggle with powers and principalities and authorities in unseen places. There is more than meets the eye with what we do here at the church. In our faith, the claim is that there is more than the material world around us. There is something going on behind the scenes always. And that is why it is so critical that we stay awake. It is critical that we take on this wartime mindset, not going to sleep, but realizing that we are in the middle of a battle. In the 1930s in Europe, the Germany was beginning to stir, and of course they had stirred during World War I just a couple of decades before, but the rest of the world in the 1930s was asleep. They thought they had seen the worst that they could see in World War I. But there was one man who was not asleep. There was one man who refused to be silent. As early as 1933, the same year that Hitler was elected chancellor in Germany, Winston Churchill was publicly warning of Germany's intentions. Now, Churchill was a lower-tier politician in Britain at the time, and he demanded that the government wake up and prepare for what was coming. The prime minister, who was the leader of Britain at the time, considered Churchill not only to be an alarmist, but he considered him to be an annoyance. He didn't want anything to do with him. He thought he was political suicide. In fact, everyone kept Churchill at bay and just thought he was crazy. Over the next few years, Germany and their ally Italy would continue to violate the terms of the World War I peace treaty. And yet, the leadership in Britain... The leadership in the rest of Europe would continue a policy of appeasement, allowing Hitler and Mussolini, the dictators of Germany and Italy, to do whatever they wanted, accommodating them even, even offering them, um, offering them concessions on a number of occasions. Again, in 1938, Churchill wrote an article for a newspaper stating, quote, Our fleet and our air force are inadequate. We're not ready. We need to wake up. He continued to be ignored, though in two more years, German bombs would be falling on Britain itself. The Bible's so clear with us 
we must be ready. In fact, this morning I happened to be reading Mark 13, and we think Mark 13 is all about the end of the world or something like that. But the central message of Mark 13 from Jesus to his disciples is to stay awake, to watch, to be ready, to always be aware because we are already in the thick of it. And this has been true for Christians in every generation, in every time, and in every place. There are already in our own lives situations within our own lives where we are in the middle of a battle. There are already situations here within our own congregation at Monument Heights that, that, that reminds us that we are in the middle of a war. There are already individuals within our congregation, unfortunately, whom Satan will exploit. They may not do so willingly or may not even be aware that's what's going on, but yet that's what happens in congregations like ours and like any congregation. The devil is out to destroy the church. He is out to malign the church. He is out to make the gospel look inferior. He is out to lead us astray. He is out to ruin reputations. He is out to destroy everything that makes Christianity compelling, that makes people see that it is powerful and capable of changing their lives. And so it is paramount that our leadership here at Monument Heights remains absolutely committed to Scripture and the faith we have received. This isn't a joking matter. It's not an opinion. It is absolutely serious. Now, if you're joining us this morning for the first time, that introduction probably sounds rather alarmist like Winston Churchill in the 1930s. And you may wonder what you've stumbled into this morning, especially if you've never been here. But we're going through a series in the book of Titus in the New Testament, and we're on the third week. So if you have a Bible or a phone, I would invite you to turn to Titus. And we're still in chapter 1. We're going to finish chapter 1 up this morning. And last week, we saw Paul's instructions to Titus about appointing elders. Elders is the New Testament word for pastor. Um, they're just an interchangeable term, actually. We see them used in, in interchangeable ways. So Paul has given instructions for appointing these leaders in the church. And now in our passage today, Titus 1, beginning in verse 10, we're going to see the reason that it's so critical to have healthy leadership in a congregation. We're going to see the reason why Paul told Titus to appoint elders. And you may recall that when Paul told Titus to appoint elders and he lists the qualifications, the very last thing he said in Titus 1 verse 9 was that they would hold fast to the word so that they could do two things, so that they could teach um, the sound doctrine, and so that they could rebuke those who had strayed from sound doctrine. So, so that they could teach and so that they could rebuke. And this week we see, again, why that's necessary. So turn with me to Titus chapter 1. We'll look at Titus chapter 1 beginning in verse 10 here now. Four. That's the connection, right? For, this is the reason I said everything before, because there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those 
of the circumcision party. Now, I don't love this word insubordinate. It's not that it's a bad translation. It's a fine translation. It's just that we don't typically use the word insubordinate. It's not real common in our language. The idea, though, is that these people are troublemakers, that they're out of control, that they aren't listening to any form of authority, that they're not interested in following the faith, that they're not interested in supporting the congregation or supporting the church. That's clear, by the way, as we go along. And notice this verse also points out that they, those of the circumcision party are especially problematic. So here is a reference to those who believe circumcision. This all comes from the Old Testament. If it sounds really weird to you, I, I understand. But it's all from the Old Testament. So these are a reference to people who believe circumcision is necessary to be righteous or to be holy, to be right with God, that it's even necessary for salvation in some sense. And Paul's saying this is especially problematic because this goes against the gospel message. Sound doctrine does not teach that we earn our salvation through good works. It teaches that Christ has won it for us. And yet this is their tendency. We're going to see it again and again and again in the book of Titus. Their tendency, these false teachers, these people who want to lead others astray, who want to create dissension and factions within the church, are those who constantly point away from the gospel and instead point to rule following, toward moralism, toward things that ultimately don't matter at all. A lot of times the church's impulse is to think that people like this and teaching like that is just innocent and well-meaning, right? For example, I grew up in, uh, I grew up in a, a, a church setting where there were a lot of professing believers who liked to define things as sinful and unholy that God himself had not defined as sinful and unholy, there were rules on top of rules. Some of you remember this, right? You had the unholy trinity of gambling, drinking, and dancing, or fill in the blank. I mean, there, there's always, it depends where you're from. So I pastored in tobacco country for the last six years. Smoking was never part of that, that, that unholy trinity. But where I grew up, smoking was always part of it. You could tell someone wasn't a Christian if they had a cigarette in their mouth right? No, not really. But that's what I was, almost what we were taught, right? That this was problematic. So, so there are people out there like that. And, and here we are almost 2,000 years later. And it doesn't seem that much different from what Paul's describing here in Titus. Now, my experience is that sometimes in the church, our impulse with people like that is sort of to pat them on the head and say, oh, well, you mean well. You, you just really want to make sure you're doing the right thing. And we want to pass it off as meaning well and, 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 and trying really hard. But the fact is the New Testament consistently depicts this behavior as deeply problematic and contrary to the gospel. Going beyond the bounds of Scripture to define salvation, to define holiness is an attempt to play God. It is deeply problematic. Make no mistake about it. In fact, I had a conversation with a man a few years about this. He didn't like something I said in a sermon because I refused to call something a sin that God did not call a sin in Scripture. And I said, we don't get to play God. He didn't like me saying that. But the idea is we don't get to be God. That is the issue here. 
Now, when we are not clear on the gospel, and by that, by the gospel, I mean that Christ has made us righteous, not our works. Okay, gospel, Christ has made us righteous, not our works. We can easily be led astray when we're not clear on that. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 talks about them being led astray. They must be silenced, that is, these false teachers, since they are upsetting whole families. Now, how are they upsetting whole families? By teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now, they appear to be teaching this salvation by works. They're telling people things like, you need to be circumcised if you really want to be holy. If you really want to be right with God, you need to do this step. If you really want to be right with God, you need to add this to what you're already doing. We do this all the time. And notice they're doing it for shameful gain. Somehow it's all about them. Somehow it stokes their ego. It stokes their pride. It makes them feel like wise teachers. It makes them feel like holy people. This is the problem with self-righteousness. And we're all prone to it. We all look at our lives and we think, well, I'm doing pretty good today, so I can sort of be self-righteous toward everyone else. And it makes us feel powerful and prideful. But Paul says it's harmful. He says they're upsetting whole families. They're harming the church. This sort of behavior is not something to take lightly. It is problematic. Then Paul quotes what appears to be a famous Cretan poet in verse 12. Remember, he's on the island of Crete, right? Titus is on Crete, so he's quoting what would be like contemporary literature, someone famous maybe in that area or from that area. So verse 12, one of the Cretans... A prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So why a Cretan would ever say this about themselves, I'm not sure. But this is the the well-known saying that's going around. So he's quoting this contemporary uh, poem about uh, Cretans. and, and, And he's saying that this illustrates what's going on today. Here's why he's quoting it. He's saying that they are teaching something that is not true, and they are doing it for their own gain. See, they are always liars, and they're lazy gluttons. In other words, they're interested in filling up their stomachs, right? Their desires. That's how the Bible speaks of the stomach, uh, that your, your desires are being filled up. And so they're doing it for their own gain. And he says, there's truth in this saying, verse 13. This testimony is true. So all of these opponents, these people who are upsetting the church, they're they're teaching something that runs contrary to the faith. They're they're teaching this works-based salvation, this this, you need to add more to, to be right with God. And he says that this testimony of Cretans being liars is true on that basis. Therefore, here's what you do, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Rebuke them sharply. Remember what he said in verse 9. The, the person, the leader, needs to hold fast to the word so that they can do two things, teach and rebuke. And here the call is to rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. And here we have some clarity on what leadership must do. Here is the task of pastors and elders, and I think this extends more broadly to leadership in the church, but it certainly applies to our 
pastors and to our elders. And let me say it in three points since this will cover the whole context of chapter one and really the whole context of the book. First, pastors are tasked with building up the congregation through sound teaching. Okay, the first purpose of sound teaching is to nourish the church, to edify, which means to build up the church, the congregation. Trees grow through proper nourishment. Buildings are established with proper materials. In the same way, pastors are not CEOs, they're not storytellers or entertainers, they're not life coaches. The job is to teach sound doctrine. Why? Because that's the only way to be built up. That's the only way that you're going to actually put down deep roots and grow into something that is worth growing into. Now, I could get up here and I could make jokes and we could have all sorts of talks and we could talk about the culture and, and lots of fun things and maybe even clever things. But the problem is that doesn't help Christians and it doesn't help the church grow deep. That's the problem. And so the first task, the central task of pastoring is to be a skilled workman in the word meaning that they can handle the Word and teach the Word to a congregation so that that congregation can be built up and strengthened and grow. Second, pastors are tasked with protecting the congregation through sound teaching. This may seem alarmist again, but when the congregation is being unsettled or led astray, the shepherds must protect. It is vital that pastors are skilled workmen in the Word of God so that they can, one, identify error and then correct error. You may not think that the church is ever at risk, but just think back over the last few decades. Can you think of conflicts? Can you think of problems within the church that have threatened to destroy or have actually caused great damage? That is where protection is needed. And third, pastors are tasked with restoring, and I'll come back to that word in a second, restoring the congregation through sound teaching. Look again at verse 13. Rebuke them. Why? What's the purpose of rebuking them? So that they may be sound in the faith. So these, these teachers, if you read this verse straightforwardly, appear to already be part of the church. So the idea to rebuke them is not to get rid of them, but to restore them. This rebuke is meant to be restorative. In fact, all church discipline in the New Testament is restorative. All correction is aimed at restoration. The hope is always that the person who is causing the problem would repent, would see the error, and would return to the congregation and serve the congregation faithfully. The hope is always that the party engaging in the problematic behavior will be restored. Pastors are responsible for exposing the dangers in the hopes of restoration. That's exactly what Paul's telling Titus here. Therefore, rebuke them so that they might be sound in the faith. It's not a fun part of the job, but it's a necessary part of the job to call people back to the faith that we have been given. To call people back to what it means to live a life rooted in the gospel. 
And sometimes this deals with with the appearance, as we're going to see in in a few minutes. Sometimes it deals with the fruit bearing. Sometimes it deals with theological error. But in any case, the pastor's responsibility, and I'm using pastors plural here, the pastor's responsibility is to protect the congregation through sound teaching and through rebuking when necessary. Consider a couple of hypothetical scenarios with me. You know they're not hypothetical, don't you? <laughs> You're a pastor. A song is sung during the service called It's a Highway to Heaven. You may know that song. I found out it's a Gaither song, actually. Uh, it's a Highway to Heaven. The song goes on to talk about purity and that purity is the only way to heaven. It says something to the effect of, uh, none shall walk up there, only the pure in heart. It's quoting from Psalm 24 there. But never once does the song mention what Christ has done. Never once does the song mention our inability to actually be pure and our inability to actually walk that highway to heaven. Instead, the whole song is an encouragement to be pure so that you can walk that highway to heaven. What do you do? Congregation sings that song, choir sings that song. What do you do? You're responsible for leading 100 people on that Sunday. They've just heard this. It's easily misconstrued. What do you do in that situation? Take another example. What if you learn that a Sunday school teacher is teaching something unorthodox? And by this, I mean like they're saying Jesus was just a good teacher, not fully divine. What if they're saying that there's actually three gods instead of one? the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. What do you do in that situation? See, pastors who confront these issues are sometimes viewed as meddlesome or controlling. People roll their eyes at them. True story. People roll their eyes at pastors for bringing this stuff up. But remember, there's a lot at stake. Pastors, in some ways must be the Winston Churchills who are sounding the alarm even if everyone else thinks they're nuts. Now, Paul gives us some expansion in verse 13. Remember the idea is that they would be sound in the faith. Verse 14 gives some descriptions about what that looks like. So he expands on verse 13 by going into 14. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So here's the issue. Remember his target. His target is these commands or traditions that point away from the gospel. And here he calls them the commands of people or the commands of mankind or humankind, something like that. They point away from the gospel. They're turning away from the truth with these commands. And by Jewish myths here, he seems to be referring to the idea that you can make yourself righteous through following certain Jewish laws like circumcision. He may have more in mind that would be a little bit more complex, but at least based on what we have here in the text, it seems that mainly his target and his concern here is these people are imposing certain standards and rules that don't derive from God. And the same danger applies to us as a church. We must never make the mistake of imposing standards and obligations that don't derive from God. All of that is turning from the truth. Now, I'm not saying that we're lax on holiness and that we don't call people to greater holiness because Scripture has plenty of that. 
And the gospel gives us a distinctive lifestyle to live. As Christians, there are certain things that we do in imitation of Christ. There are certain things we avoid. So there's always this fine line in the New Testament. You can go off the rails one way or the other. Here in Titus, going off the rails means imposing additional rules outside of the gospel. In other places, we see people going off the rails the other way, and that is the rules don't matter whatsoever. God doesn't care what we do. We'll just do whatever we like, and it'll all work out in the end. Both errors are found in the New Testament. But what we're called to is this gospel calling. One, Christ has done what we could never do for ourselves. Just like, the, just like Israel were slaves in Egypt. And God called them out by his mercy without any of their help. And then he calls them to a new lifestyle as a result. Remember what he says, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. Now you shall be my people. That is the same thing the gospel calls us to. The gospel calls us to look to Christ who has done what we could never do for ourselves. And now because of what he has done, because of the gift of grace, we are then responding to the gospel by imitating Christ. And so to turn away from the truth, to turn away from the gospel, according to Paul here, is death. It is death. There's no power in it. There's no hope. There's no possibility of change. If, if you're just talking about moral, moralism, okay, and by moralism I mean something like just follow the Ten Commandments and you'll be okay, which by the way is bizarre. Why don't we ever say follow the Sermon on the Mount? I, I've been wondering that lately. Well, why are we so bent on the Ten Commandments? All the Ten Commandments can do, as I've told you many times, is they can expose our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. That's what they're good for. That's what the law does. It exposes our sinful heart. It shows us that we are not capable of being righteous. Okay, so, but, but the problem is sometimes we give the impression that Christianity is just about following this list of rules. And when we do that, there is no gospel and there is no power. And we wonder why there's no change, why, why we are struggling so much. Because if the gospel is turned into mere rule following or mere moralism, it only creates an impossible burden that no human being can actually accomplish. It doesn't result in righteousness or holiness. It doesn't result in humility. It doesn't result in love. It doesn't result in kindness or patience or any of the fruits of the Spirit. That's exactly what Paul's point is in these next two verses. Look at verses 15 and 16 with me. We'll go 15 and then I'll talk about it and then we'll get to 16. 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their conscience consciences are defiled. Now, there's some complexity to it, so let's untangle it. When he says pure, it brings to mind this Old Testament law, and that's probably what's going on in Crete. There is a group who has infiltrated the church, and they are saying, to be really pure, to be really good, you need to add this. You need to follow these particular customs and rules. But for Paul, this concept of purity comes exclusively through Christ. We are pure and undefiled in Christ and only in Christ. That's why he writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become what the righteousness of God. So Christ becomes sin so that we can become righteous. That's how this works. But for Paul, the, all of this is bound up in, in being in Christ. 
And the problem he has here with these people is those who don't trust Christ are defiled or impure. That's why he says to be undefiled and, notice the next word, unbelieving. Unbelieving, untrusting. They don't trust Christ. To those people, nothing is pure. It doesn't matter how much they insist on their outward appearance of righteousness. It's not real purity. It's not real change. Nothing new is actually in the place. It's not being born again. They are stuck like hamsters on those wheels in this endless cycle of rule following and no power to change. It's terribly sad. And their minds, Paul says, are skewed. He says their their minds and their consciences are also defiled, using the same word there he used before. They're distorted. Everything they say is distorted. This is why they're so dangerous. Because when they open their mouth to give wisdom or to teach, when he said they're upsetting whole families, the problem is what they're teaching is a lie. It's not helpful. It's pointing them away from the truth. But the gospel provides the power to change, to really change. And we'll see that so clearly next week when we get into chapter 2, that the gospel really does create change. It changes how we live our lives, how we treat our marriages, how we spend our money, how we do our jobs, how we parent, how we think about relationships in general. It changes everything, or it should. And that's the point of chapter 2. It should radically alter us. One of the sad things about the church in 2021 in the United States is that we're not distinct. You can't tell a Christian apart from anybody else. It's necessary that we would be distinct. And the gospel also calls us to that. Christians live distinctive lifestyles through the gospel. Not through rule following, through the gospel. Verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Now, how is that possible? Well, they deny him because they're relying on themselves, right? They're unbelieving. They don't trust Christ. So they deny him by their works. Even if their works look good, they're denying the gospel. Do you see how that works? If you don't trust Christ and you do good things, you're relying on your own goodness. And that's a denial of the gospel. It's bringing great reproach on yourself. He goes on, he says, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. In other words, their lives don't reflect the transformation of the gospel. And their disruption in the church is evidence enough that they are outside the gospel. And they have no business leading God's people. They're unfit for any good work. They're incapable of it. Now here's one application. Notice Paul's urgency. This is serious, isn't it? This really, one commentator writes that this is the section 10 through 16 on which the whole letter hinges. Because here you see his urgency. You see the whole reason he's writing. The whole reason he sat down to say, Titus, I have something to say to you, is right here in 10 through 16. There's a problem, and he's writing to warn him of that problem. Now, as Baptists, we have a particular and unique understanding of church membership. We understand church membership different from virtually every other denomination. We're not exclusively a denomination, but, but we understand church membership different than almost every other Christian tradition out there. And here's how we understand church membership. We believe church membership 
requires a profession of faith. And what that means is we believe our membership is actually made up of believers. Okay, and this does differ. This differs from, talk to a Presbyterian pastor, they will tell you our membership, just like Old Testament Israel, is mixed. Some of them are um, wheat, some of them are weeds, and God will sort that out in the end. They'll say that. And we know that in reality, it can happen like that in a Baptist church. But in our theory, we believe that in order to be a member of a Baptist church, one should evidence regeneration, meaning they should show evidence that they have gotten the gospel and been born again. That's regeneration. All I mean is by born again. They should evidence that. They should make a profession of faith, which is why, by the way, we have baptism following the profession of faith. That's why we're so weird about all this stuff. Okay? Because it's all bound up in what we think and how we understand Scripture to teach what the church is. Unfortunately, Baptist churches have not always taken their membership seriously. Would you agree with that? Good statistic here is any Southern Baptist church right now, and this is pre-COVID, so I can't really tell you what post-COVID is. I guarantee you it's worse. But on any given Sunday, the largest the largest Protestant group in the United States is the Southern Baptist Convention, roughly 11 million members. On any given Sunday, you can expect somewhere between a third and a quarter of the membership to be in the pews. Okay, we know that in our church as well. I'm not going to quote our membership numbers, but it's much higher than what we see in front of us. And it was true even before COVID happened. And it's because Baptists have failed to take their membership seriously. For example, I had a lady say to me one time about some kids in a church that she, she comes up to me and she says, you know, so-and-so is about at that age. You know, they're, they're right at nine or ten. It's about time for them to make a decision. That's not how that works. That's not how it works. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I don't blow like the wind and awaken people's hearts. That's not how it works. And here's where this gets dicey. As Baptists, we also make decisions as a congregation, don't we? We're congregationalists. We don't believe I have all authority. We don't believe that a certain committee has all authority. We believe the congregation, that is the membership, who, again, we believe are all regenerate, all born again, all actual believers, they are the ones who make decisions. Do you see how devastating this can be for a congregation that is not sound in the faith or that is full of unbelievers? I say that as an alarmist, right? But think about it. What if a Baptist church has even 12 unbelievers that are helping make decisions for the congregation? They make all sorts of bad decisions. Why? Paul tells us in verses 15 and 16, their minds are defiled. They're clouded. They don't understand the wisdom of the gospel. This is why it's necessary for us to take our membership seriously. This is why it's not a joke. It's why it's not something we can put off. It's why it's absolutely vital for us not to sweep things under the rug. Like when there's an issue in the church and someone's acting outside the bounds of the gospel, that we actually address it and not just say, oh, well, that's just how they act. We actually have to do something about it. This is why doctrinal error must be dealt with. Like in the case of that Sunday school teacher I mentioned, if they're teaching a doctrine that is inconsistent with the historic Christian faith, we have a problem, don't we? That's a problem. Church, we are in a renewal effort 
That's why I'm here. That's what we're doing. We've been clear about that at Monument Heights. But we're also in the middle of a war. The world, the flesh, and the devil are out to destroy us. A church that lacks gospel witness is an effective tool in Satan's hands. If we allow problems like we see here in Titus 1, 10 through 16 to run rampant in our church, if we allow moralism to run rampant and the gospel's never spoken plainly and clearly, then that church becomes a witness not for Christ, but it becomes a black eye or a, a malignment to the gospel. People look at that church and they say, look at those hypocrites. They don't have any power. They don't have anything that I'm interested in. And you know what they're doing right now? They're running everywhere else looking for answers. They'll go take a yoga class. They'll go learn how to do Buddhist meditation. They'll go take some sort of new age health class somewhere else because Christianity is just not doing it for them. And that, that's on us as a congregation. It's not on us to impress the world, but it is on us to be faithful. It is on us to ensure that our leadership is positioned to respond faithfully. It is on us to take these things seriously. And as a Baptist church where the congregation makes decisions, I have to put the burden on you. You have to make some of these tough decisions regarding membership and how seriously these things are going to be taken. Because a church that is devoted to the gospel, that is serious about Jesus being king, that is serious about living a life that reflects the gospel and cares about being holy, cares about growing in grace, that church is a useful tool for the Lord. And time and time and time and time again, despite whatever challenges have arisen in history, God has used people just like that to glorify his name. The time for sleep has passed. It is time for us to get out of bed, to wake up, it is time for us to recognize the readied forces of the enemy. The enemy has had thousands of years to prepare. It is time for us to be alert to the dangers. And that applies to both individuals. So I say that to you as individuals, to me. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what struggles you came in here with. I don't know what temptations you're dealing with. But as an individual, I'm not telling you get those things under control yourself. I'm saying the way to do that is one, primarily through the gospel, but then also through the aid of the congregation. You're not meant to struggle alone. You're meant to call, you're called to greater accountability and exhortation through God's people. Because you may have to have a conversation to get that ball rolling, but, but that might be where you're at. And then I say that as a congregation as well that it is time for us to be alert to the dangers. And so, congregation, I would encourage you, when you see some of these dangers popping up, that you are willing to draw a line, that you're willing to point out the dangers. I'm not asking you to come to me and snitch on people, by the way. I'm asking you to confront the person in love. And I'm absolutely convinced that any move toward renewal means that Monument Heights must adopt a wartime mentality. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about the wartime mentality of the 70s and 80s where we shake our fist at the culture out there for being so godless. I don't ever think that was the church's role. I'm talking about a wartime mentality right here within our own congregation. 
against the spiritual forces that seek to gain a foothold in our church and will use people within our own congregation to destroy us from the inside out. That is what we're up against. Any movement of God will be met with an opposing response from Satan and the powers of hell. And he will use any foothold within the church to destroy the church from within. Pastor Rupert is going to come and pray for us, but let me remind you that the gospel is always a call for a response. See, the gospel is an announcement that God has done through Christ what we could never do for ourselves. So there's a call, if you're an unbeliever, a call to repent and to trust Christ with your life, with everything. If you're a believer, it's also a call to lay down your life and follow Christ. To not continue in the patterns of the world, but to continue in following your Savior and your Lord. To say Jesus is Lord, to say he's your king, means your whole life is radically undone. So some of you, me included, our response this morning needs to be of repentance. Take that time in our last song to do that, but also what I want to offer you and lay out as an invitation to you is that our pastoral staff is happy to help you, to point you in the right direction, to get you connected to the congregation, to pray with you, to counsel you, to do all of those things to be an aid to you. And I don't mean to shame and guilt you. I mean to be an aid to you because the repentance is always the right move, always the right move, and it is always meant for restoration. You're never going to be rebuked for repentance. So Rupert and I will be outside. I know at the end of the service we'll be outside. We'd love to talk to you then. You can send us an email. Then finally, if you have questions, I've talked about church membership and some things. If you have questions about what that looks like, what it means to join Monument Heights, we're happy to answer those as well, either outside or through an email. You can, you can inquire more about that, and we'll tell you exactly how that can be done. We would love to walk you through that. Love to see you partner with us here at Monument Heights. But for now, uh, Pastor Rupert's coming to lead us in our pastoral prayer. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Lord, as we come before you, we've heard your word shared. We thank you for Sean. We thank you for his leadership. We turn to ourselves and say, where am I in this? Help us to share your truth, to look inward, to be your truth. Lord, we pray for those in our congregation who are hurting, who have been in the hospital, who have recently had a loss in their life, lost a loved one. We ask that you undergird all of those that you would come alongside, that they would see your presence and feel your presence in their time of need. Help us as a congregation to turn our eyes toward you, toward Jesus. In his precious and holy name I pray. Amen.